Matthew chapter number 21. And I want to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. We're going to continue, of course, our study this morning of the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, uh, as they relate, of course, to um, our study here of the confession of faith that we have been working our way through. And I want to draw your attention to Matthew 21. Uh, these first 11 verses deal primarily with the triumphal entry of Jesus. And of course, we recall that event, or I hope most of us recall that event, uh, that as Jesus came into the city, he came in as a promised Messiah. Uh, he came in also as a prophesied king. And the reception of Jesus at first was that there was a response of what appeared to be worship. Uh, within this particular text, we see a reference made to two of these offices that we've been dealing with, with the offices of Christ, and that would be the office of prophet and of king. And uh, But of course, we know that as we continue to study the Bible, that this uh, this was a temporary uh, worship of the Lord because it would not be long afterwards uh, that those who once worshipped him uh, or appeared to worship him would turn away from him. But in Matthew 21, verse 1, it tells us, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a, a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and Jesus and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Now you and I know today, of course, that Christ has already come. We know that he came not only as a prophet, but he also came as a priest and a king. We know today that he is no longer on this earth bodily. Uh, he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and was returned back to where he originally came from. He's been exalted into glory. The work that we see the Lord doing when we read through the scriptures was the earthly work of a prophet that he did. We know that he did many of those works. He's known for the many great deeds that he did and for the many miracles that he did. Uh, he came and was the fulfillment of many of the previous prophets. The interesting thing about the text that we read this morning, among many things, is that there was already an expectation in that day and age that the Messiah was to be looked for. Uh, he was to be expected. Uh, he would not, uh, it should not have come as any surprise that the Messiah was on his way. Uh, they expected him to be something else, though. When Jesus came, the multitudes, especially the Jews, did not expect Jesus to come as anything uh, less 
than a temporal king. In other words, they emphasized the kingship of Jesus. They thought that their hope, they thought that their, uh, all of their uh, uh, hope and refuge would be found in Jesus coming and setting up a temporal kingdom. They wanted him to come and assume the throne. They wanted him to knock away the Roman Empire and be seated upon a throne of authority. There were many, though, who in that same crowd realized that Jesus was not coming to be simply a temporal king. Uh, Many of the Jews also believed they thought when Jesus comes, he's going to declare war on the Roman Empire. He's going to declare war on them, and he is going to restore to the Jews their lost nationality. In other words, the Jews wanted their own, uh, they wanted their own nation back. But there were many, though they did not believe in Christ with a spiritual faith, they did hope that at least he could deliver us from the temporary, the temporary world in which they're living in. There's occasions in Scripture when they begged and tried to take Jesus, and they wanted to take him not as Savior, they wanted to take him as King. And we know in those accounts that Jesus hid himself from them, and that was evidence, living proof, that Jesus did not come to just give grant, to grant temporary deliverance from an oppressive government, nor did he come at that time to be the king. There was a desire there. There was a society that had this desire that we need to restore order. We need to have our lives back. They were living in oppression. Now Jesus, as prophet, had come and he had done mighty works. He had healed the sick. He had fed thousands. He he was able to raise people from the dead. And they thought if that man, if that prophet can do all those things, can you imagine what he could do to restore the kingdom of Israel and set us free from the Roman Empire? They saw a Savior to come and redeem them from a present crisis. I would submit to you today, just by way of an extended application here, that that idea is very prevalent again today as well. We want someone to deliver us from our present crisis. Uh, We want someone who will restore what we're used to. We'll restore order. But yet, Jesus saw that he was coming into what the nations would see as a crisis. But Jesus had only had one option. He must fulfill the work of his Father. Some people have said Jesus was given that choice. Could he yield to the people's wishes and be made king now? Or would he continue the work the Father gave him to do? Really, there was never an option. Jesus never once considered that today I'm going to come to the nation of Israel and I'm going to set myself up as a king. The Father's will was not for Jesus to come and be a king. The Father's will was for the Son to come and be a Savior. To be a Savior of those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. He came to give His life a ransom for many and to save others, not to be made a king Himself. Don't imagine that everybody who threw down those branches and cried out Hosanna cared one bit about Jesus as Savior. They wanted Jesus to deliver them from their present crisis. We want our oppressor, the Roman Empire, gone. 
So just because there were hosannas being announced, just because there were blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, hosanna in the highest, doesn't mean that everybody who voiced that or spoke that or shouted that truly believed in Jesus as a savior or a spiritual king. They thought they were welcoming in their temporary deliverer. I think that's important to know. But we also know that there was a prophecy. There was a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 about how this Messiah would come. And Jesus fulfilled it exactly. He was publicly coming and proclaiming himself to be the son of David, the rightful heir of the throne of David. Christ's kingdom is different than what the people expected it to be. I would submit to you again today, the kingdom of Christ is different than what people and society expects it to be. We're all, in some sense, looking for a deliverance. We're all, in some sense, looking for a removal of oppression. But the reality is, is that Christ's kingdom has always been, is currently, and will always be different from anything that has ever been seen or anything that ever will be seen. Christ's kingdom is not just making this world better. As a matter of fact, that's not even part of the Father's will in its current state. Now, one day we do believe the promises of the Bible that tell us there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth. We do know that those days are coming. But Christ did not come to set up a temporary kingdom. What we learn about this, the offices of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, is they should never be viewed as just a historical part of Jesus' life. Oftentimes, there's a temptation or a tendency to simply say, well, Jesus used to be a prophet, Jesus used to be a priest, and Jesus used to be a king. And we treat them as if they're just historical facts. And the reality is, is the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king are still an ongoing work. He is still in the role of prophet. He is still in the role of priest. And he is still in this role of king. Christ will always and for eternity be prophet, priest, and king. He continues as a prophet to reveal to us by his word. We, he reveals the spirit and the will of God. And we know that in this account in Matthew 21, of course, Jesus' authoritative teaching and his miracles showed that Jesus, as Luke 24, 19 says, he was a prophet mighty in deed and in word. There was also a sense that the crowds were receiving him as a king. There's a royal overtone to this. But we need to understand that Jesus as the prophet, although he's still not, he's not in this world as he was, the Holy Spirit of God is teaching and revealing Jesus as that prophet who came and illuminated our mind and showed us to understand the things of God. So when we read the scriptures and we read the accounts of Jesus' life, we read the accounts of, of God's purposes and God's plan, we're still seeing the work of Jesus as prophet. Even in that final verse that we read, the multitude said, this is Jesus the prophet. There was almost no mistake about the reality that Jesus was a prophet. The sad thing is, most people did not refuse to acknowledge him in his other two offices, that he was actually the priest and the king, just not the way that they wanted him to be. How does Jesus continue his work as a priest? Well, he no longer offers himself up as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus' greatest priestly work was when he went to the cross and he died 
as the sinner substitute. He was the propitiation. He offered himself as a sacrifice. But still to this day, Jesus, who ascended back to the right hand of the Father, is still making intercession for us. Remember, we gave the definition of a priest last week, and it is one who intercedes on behalf of another. How does Jesus intercede for us today? Well, there at the right hand of the Father, He intercedes for us as taking continually the benefits of what His atoning sacrifice did, and it gives us access and acceptance with God. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15 tell us this about Jesus. Seeing then that we have... That's a present tense. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, the therefore is there because of what has just been said, Because of Jesus as the high priest, because of the fact that we do not have a priest that cannot be touched with our infirmities, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. Grace to what? Grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews goes on, we won't read it this morning, but goes on in Hebrews 5 to describe the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is continually and will forever be a priest because he will continue to apply the benefits of his sacrifice, which is the only means of granting us access and acceptance with God. We have access. In Ephesians 3, chapter number 12, Ephesians 3, chapter number 12, we're reminded again about how and why we can have access to God. Ephesians 3.12, in whom, this is Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. And I love what Paul adds here. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Access. It's an important word. We're given access to the throne of God, the throne of grace, because Jesus Christ is still our high priest. He's still a prophet. He's still a priest. And we'll see in a moment, he's still and will always be a king. Often people say, what makes what I do for God acceptable? In other words, what makes my prayer acceptable? What makes my, even my praise acceptable to God? The only thing that makes your praise and even makes your prayer acceptable is Jesus Christ. I could praise God all I want, but if I'm not in Christ, it's not acceptable to God. Those people who lined the streets as Jesus came in, just as the prophets had said, who were saying, Hosanna in the highest, without Jesus Christ as priest, those prayers and those praises and the worship of God is not acceptable. That's why Jesus himself told that woman at the well that he who worship Lord must worship him in spirit and in truth. It can't just be what man wants worship to be. It can't just be what man thinks makes him acceptable to God. 
This access and this acceptability to God must come through Jesus Christ. And it comes through the office of priest. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, this is spelled out a bit for us. And the writer of Hebrews, again, is in the midst of the context of warning about strange doctrines and warning about strange teachings. And he gives a very impactful statement as to what makes our sacrifices of even our praise acceptable. Hebrews 13, 15, By Him, again, that's Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. It's an amazing truth that if Jesus Christ did not continue in his office of prophet, we would, no long, we would not be able to even understand his word. If he did not continue in his office as priest, nothing that we do would be acceptable to God. Even what appears to be our simple praise. But what about this office as king? Some would say, well, Jesus has not entered into this particular role yet because He's not ruling and reigning on earth. Again, you're looking too temporarily. You're looking in too temporal terms. Jesus has never and never was it intended that He would come and set up a kingdom and a throne in the current world system and the current world state. His kingdom is coming, but the kingdom already exists. His kingdom is already in existence. Jesus as king continues to redeem and continues to rescue his children from the, from the, the, the clutches of the devil, from the temptations of the devil, delivers us from the bondage of sin. He rules and directs us through his commandments. How do we know His King? Because we submit to His Word. He may not be bodily sitting upon a throne or sitting in an office and with a sign on the door that says King. But when you are in Christ, He becomes not just your ticket out of hell card, He becomes the King and the Lord and the ruler of your life. There's a tremendous difference between just the Jesus that just saves me from hell and the Jesus that not only has saved me from hell, spared me the consequences of my sin, but He's also the Lord of my life. He is not just a general King of Kings. He is my King of Kings and my Lord of Lords. A king has also been given the task of protecting his own from the enemy. Jesus as King does just that. Ultimately, Jesus is preserving us from spiritual harm. Now, nowhere are we promised in the Word of God that we will be kept from every temporal harm that this world doles out. No matter how we feel about life, there will always, in this life, the way it is, as long as sin is here. There will always be death. There will always be disease. There will always be trials. There will always be suffering. Until Jesus Christ comes and gets His bride, takes His children with Him. This world is a fallen world. But Jesus Christ is still King. 
When I look at the world that's falling around us, it crumbles around us, I know that that is not where my hope is found. My hope is found in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I never get up any morning and look and hope that I have a new place to put my hope in today or that I have a new sense or a new direction or now I'm hopeful because something has happened in this temporal world that now makes me feel better about tomorrow. No, my hope is found in Christ. And it's found in these offices of prophet, priest, and king. Now one thing we've got to guard against and again, remember, doctrine that is false is often very, very close to what's true. It's just twisted just a little bit. And I want to warn us about that, that when we think about these offices of prophet, priest, and king, we need to understand that these are separate offices, but they cannot be separated. In other words, it will become popular to emphasize Jesus as prophet, but to neglect him as priest or to neglect him as king. Christ is all at once prophet, priest, and king. Three distinguishing offices or three, sep three separate offices, but they should not be taken to a place to where each any of them could exist alone. When Jesus teaches, when we learn through the Word of God, when we are enlightened and illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God, that is Jesus teaching as a prophet. He is always a prophet, but He's also at the same time as He's teaching us, He is still priest and He is still king. When Jesus Christ offers a sacrifice or intercedes on our, beh our behalf there at the right hand of the Father, He's acting as priest, but He's still a prophet and He's still a king. When we get the commandments of the Word of God, He's still ruling as King. But at the same time, He's also ruling not just as a King, He's ruling as a King who is also a priest and is also a prophet. That word, the throne of grace, even gives the picture of a king and a priesthood. Think about the phrase, the throne of grace. Think about what's encapsulated in that thought. Why do I get to the throne of grace? How, why, why do I even have a right to be there? Because of Jesus' offer as pre, priest. Why is it grace? Why do I know about grace today? I know about grace through His Word. I know about grace through the Holy Spirit reminding me about who Jesus Christ is. One commentator put it this way, he says, when talking of Christ exercising a threefold office, we must beware of separating the various functions. Together they cohere in one work of Christ. Hence, Christ's prophetic office at once reveals him as both priest and king. His priestly sacrifice reveals the love, grace, and justice of God, and so it is also prophetic. His kingship provides the authority undergirding all he does in prophetic and priestly terms. In short, Christ is prophet, priest, and king simultaneously and continuously. During his earthly ministry, he did not simply perform a prophetic role in revealing God and his purposes, then switch to a priestly mode for his sacrifice on the cross and finally become king at his resurrection, each function being jettisoned when the next one took over. He didn't roll from one office to the next. 
So as time went on, he didn't act in the role of prophet, and then the role of prophet disappeared, and then he became priest, and then once the work was done there, then he moved into kingship. No, he's all three simultaneously, continuously, and it never ends. It's important to remember that when you study the Word of God, you cannot just read the Word of God as Christ speaking as a prophet. You have to read it as Christ speaking as prophet, priest, and king. When Jesus was doing the miraculous works that we read about, and again, we're reading backward. We're reading, we're reading what happened in the past. Don't just read Jesus as a prophet. You're reading Him as prophet, priest, and king. Even as a prophet, He was acting in those roles because He is in all three of those offices. When we read a commandment, and I know today, in this day and age, and in our our, our generation of enlightened religion and that's maybe my own term it's self-enlightenment man has begun to look at God through his own lens and decided what he wants God to be they like aspects of God I like Jesus as prophet I like Jesus as the miracle worker but I don't like Jesus in the role of king I don't like to be told what to do I don't, like to, I don't like the commandments. The commandments seem a little bit bossy. They seem a little bit pushy. And even people going to the extent of saying, who does God think He is that He can tell me what to do in 2020? Don't I have the freedom to choose and the freedom to do whatever I want to do? And man loves what the freedom they think they have. But if you just read the Bible as Jesus in one of these three offices, and you're not taking all three as a whole, you're not getting an accurate biblical picture of who Jesus is. When he came in riding into Jerusalem, he was not just a prophet. When they asked the question, who is this? They said, oh yeah, that's the prophet. But he was also prophet, priest, and king. So when I read commandments, yes, he's the prophet, but he's also in the role of king. When we see a commandment in the Word of God, instead of asking the question, why do I have to do this? Why does God command this? Maybe we should ask the question, what can I learn from the commandment? What can I learn? What, what, what is God teaching me? You know, God is not this arbiter who just simply said, you know what, I think what I'm going to do when I create the world, I'm going to design a whole bunch of arbitrary commandments and just throw them at people randomly. And just, you know, just because I want to. We lose sight of the reality that God doesn't function like we do, like humans do. You know, when we look at humanity, and, you know, let's just be honest. The last seven or eight months, we could look out on the horizon and we can say, what in the world are people thinking? Who thought this up? But we also know because man is fallible. I don't look to another human being and expect perfection. I can't. You can't look to me for perfection. You can't look to your spouse, your children, to your government, anything. You cannot look with the eyes of expecting perfection. But if God gives a commandment, that commandment is perfect. Now man will try to answer the commandment by saying, is this relevant for 2020? Is this applicable for my life today? That's why Bible preaching, they use the term, I need relevant preaching. All of God's Word is relevant no matter what year it is. 
<laughs> it, it's, it wasn't more relevant 2,000 years ago, and it's not going to be less relevant 2,000 years from now. It's just as relevant. Why? Because it's God's Word. His commandments are not grievous, the Bible says. His commandments are not burdensome. So when believers read the commandments of God, we don't say, why do I have to do that? We say, why would God want me to obey that? And what could I learn? More specifically, I would suggest that this is actually the goal, is what, what do I learn about God through the commandment? See, we've lost sight of the reality. Instead of just looking at the Bible as a bunch of rules, we've lost sight of the fact that everything God gives us is in order that we might know God. My utmost desire as a child of God today ought to be to know God more and more and more. You and I will never arrive and say, I know all about God. There's nothing more I can learn. I've read the Bible 50 times, someone might say. I've read it cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. You still only know a fraction about who God is. And as I've mentioned, you don't read the Bible just for completion. Don't just make your goal to read through the Scriptures one whole time through every year. No, make it your goal to know God. What do I know about God through the commandment? What do I know about God through what He's telling me? And if I read it as prophet, priest, and king, suddenly the commandment now ties to not just Christ's work as a prophet, but His work as a priest. How does that commandment tie to a sacrificial work? And how does it even ultimately tie to His office of king? The second question maybe I ask myself when I see those commandments, what does this commandment lead me to confess? I have found in my own personal life, when I read the commandments, I'm, also, I'm often brought to conviction. Conviction of my own sin. Don't read the Bible for what somebody else needs to know or what they need to hear. Read the Bible and let the Holy Spirit convict you. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. If I get focused on who needs, to, who needs to repent of what, it's amazing. I've got a list as long as my arm of people who need to get right with God. But the most important person needs to get right with God, and I think it's daily, is the person reading the Scripture for themselves. That's me. Oh, my humanity, my flesh floods a lot of people's names who need to get right with God, but when the commandment is there, the commandment I'm reading is not for someone else. The commandment is for me. That's Jesus acting in the role of king. Is He the Lord of my life? If He's the Lord of my life, His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not grievous. I'm not, I don't find myself saying, why does God forbid me from doing this? So maybe it's repentance, but it also may be, how do I need to obey that commandment? That first question about what do I learn, that recognizes Christ as prophet. That second question about what do I need to repent of? That recognizes Christ as priest. That third question of what do I need to start doing or stop doing? That recognizes Christ as king. It's also important to remember that when it comes to the way in which Christ is offered in the gospel, if we're going to give a gospel message, you cannot just simply present Christ as a prophet. You cannot simply just present him as a priest and you simply cannot just present him as a king the gospel 
is Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. That must be emphasized. Folks, when you just take, drill down to most gospel preaching and presentations today, and it takes away those three offices and emphasizes one of the three. Jesus is all three of those. You cannot worship God or worship Christ properly by dividing his offices and his person. You cannot say, well, I more like him as king. I more like him as priest. I more like him as prophet. They like to think of Christ as a priest who saves us from sin and the penalty of sin, but I don't want to regard him as king who I have to submit to him. You know why the word submit brings so much, makes people cringe? Because our humanity can't stand that word. We cannot stand it. Even the word just sounds, submit. We hate it. Because we say, why? Why do I have to submit? Me of all people, why do I have to submit? Because everybody knows I know better. So why would I submit to something? Submission, the biblical term, and submitting to Christ. Submitting to Christ alone for your salvation. Believe it or not, when we, when we cry in Christ alone here, if you truly believe in Christ alone, you are pronouncing and you are declaring that I submit to Christ. You have to do the very thing your flesh hates. You have to submit. Now we know that word's been taken out of context, abused, misused, misapplied. There are people who love to throw the word submit around. But the reality is, is true submission is submitting to Christ. Then you have others who think my salvation comes by simply submitting to Christ as king. They make statements like this, I obey all his laws. I live by all of his standards. Sin is, no, is a mere uh, just a, a mere little thing in my life. But they forget that if Jesus Christ isn't priest, they're not even acceptable before God, even if you could keep all the laws. See, your acceptance before God is not even in your ability to be able to keep the law. Even if you were, even if you were 100% capable of keeping the entire law, which you're not, you still wouldn't be acceptable to God unless it was through the righteousness of Christ. That's why works-based salvation is so deadly. You actually draw in your mind and you think, I could do enough to supersede the righteousness of Christ. And people in religions all over this world are driving themselves crazy. Trying to, sub trying to be so obedient in order that that might gain them some favor and acceptance with God. You will never reach it. See, Jesus' work is priest. People want to call him Lord, but don't do the things that he says. If you divide the work, you're attempting to divide who Christ has declared himself to be and who the Father declared himself to be. You cannot separate the functions of prophet, priest, and king. You must and I must, as an individual, receive him as he is offered in his totality. 
If I'm not willing to accept Christ as prophet, priest, and king, then don't fool yourself into believing that you're somehow in the faith. We've spent so many years, I think, wrongly declaring to people who or who or who is not in the faith. And we've narrowed down the gospel to simply just asking him a simple question. And we think, well, that proves that you're in the faith. I would submit to you, there's a lot of people out there that probably are dividing Jesus into these offices and they're taking Jesus for the part that they like the best. There are churches all over this, all over this country you can go to that will never refer to Jesus as king and they'll never refer to him as priest. They'll talk about his prophecy. There will be people in some cases who will come and knock on your door who will emphasize Jesus' work as prophet, but they won't touch his work as priest and as king. They'll use the same terminology you're using. They'll say, hey, you and I believe in Jesus. Not the same Jesus, because you're dividing him. Ask them the question, do you believe Jesus as prophet, priest, and king? Most of those people who knock on your door will say no, He's just, the, he's just a prophet. That's an indication, indication you're dealing with a false doctrine right on your doorstep. Christ as priest declared himself to offer forgiveness of sins. He said, come unto me, all you who labor. Talks about being heavy laden and I will give you rest. Christ as a prophet today even instructs us to become a learner. He instructs us to take His yoke upon ourselves, I'm paraphrasing, and learn from Him. To take a yoke is actually, it's to take something that will govern you. A yoke on an animal is an instrument of submission. Once you put that yoke on, that animal responds to whatever direction that yoke goes. We've, we've heard people use that. So that's just Jesus just being calm and compassionate and caring. No, that's actually submission to him as king. He's now driving. No, no irreverence meant there, but he's the one in charge. We see Christ inviting sinners to come to him. Come to Him for all that He is. When Christ offered Himself, even on the Gospels, when He offered Himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and we read the narratives about Him, when He was offering Himself, when He was saying, come unto Me, He was not offering Himself as just a prophet or a priest or a king. He was offering Himself as all three at the same time. I am all three of these things. And if you come to Christ, if you truly come to Christ, you are coming to Him as prophet, priest, and king. Not one of three or two of three, but all three of them. Many false teachers will tell you today, all you need to do is receive Christ as your Savior, but you don't need to receive Him as Lord. I would argue with you, biblically speaking, that's not the gospel. If all I'm concerned about is numbers and all I'm concerned about is decisions, then yes, I'm just going to preach Christ as Savior. And you can get decisions. You can get people to admit. You can get people to pray. But I'm telling you, when you start asking, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Well, that, that, Jesus never called me to be the Lord of life. Why would you not want Him to be the Lord of your life? 
That's the question. Why would you not want him to be? If, you're, if he truly saved you, why would it, making him the Lord of your life be a burden? Actually, that's where you should find your great joy and your great hope is that I have the Lord for the Lord of my life. But again, as I've told you, if you just present the gospel as this, is that Jesus just came so you don't have to go to hell. If that's your ultimate only understanding of Jesus, you don't even understand God. That's not the only reason he came. If the only reason that he came was to save you from hell, then he wouldn't need three offices. He'd only need one. The office of priest. But all three of these offices... One of the old, old Puritans, Thomas Boston, I'll finish with this, said, you cannot take Christ as a redeemer if you take him not in all his offices. He offers himself to sinners in no other way. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Many pretend to take Christ as a savior to save them from hell and wrath who do not hearken to him as prophet to teach them the saving knowledge of God, nor submit to his laws and commandments. How many call Christ their Lord, and yet do not the things that he saith? Oh, the folly of the world that reject Christ's teaching, saying, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Oh, the stupidity of those who despise Christ as priest, and think to recommend themselves to the divine favor by their own works of righteousness, which they substitute in the room of his righteousness. Oh, the madness of those who condemn Christ as king, refusing to submit to his royal authority, and who spurn at his laws and his government. So we learn a little bit about the ongoing work today of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Next week we're going to look at this role of prophet, priest, and king with regard to Adam and how what we lost in Adam has been restored to us in Christ. It's kind of a deep thought, but we'll talk about that next week. All right, so let's take a few moments. If anybody has any questions that you'd like to...